The growth of offshore wind in the North Sea has the potential to completely reshape the economic and energy landscape of Northern Europe. Green energy exported en masse to the rest of the continent, revitalizing local economies and providing a timely boost for net zero ambitions. But this future will not come without work. The industry needs skills. It needs people to take on the challenge. The region has of course been an important source of energy since the 1960s, although the renewable potential is a recent realisation. Exploration for fossil fuels began in the early 20th century, but it was not until the 60s that significant deposits were discovered. The first North Sea fields were discovered in the Dutch sector in 1959, and the first commercial production of oil began in 1963. Production in the North Sea quickly expanded and by the 1970s, the region was a major supplier of petroleum in Europe. As the scale of production in the North Sea expanded, so did its role in the global offshore drilling and production industry. Many of the techniques and technologies developed in the North Sea have been used around the world. Fossil fuel production has been in decline in recent years, but the role of the North Sea in the energy transition may be more important now than ever before as the North Sea leads a revolution in how we harness energy from nature. Hello, and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Johnny Dowling. And welcome to this special live episode of the podcast, being recorded in the beautiful Great Hall of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We've come to Scotland to explore the UK's powerhouse and the dramatic changes it's going through. For 50 years now, our energy has been linked with the North Sea, from the discovery of oil to the present explosion in offshore wind, all of which has been accompanied by advances in the scale of assets being deployed by the industry. For this episode, we've partnered with Fugro, a geodata company that identifies the best places for wind turbines to be located in the North Sea, and inspects existing ones to check they're still sound. We're going to dive into the offshore energy revolution. This is not just a revolution in energy source or scale. Industry is changing the way it works and thinks as we enter a new age of North Sea energy. The North Sea has loomed large in Britain's energy sector for well over half a century now. Up to the end of 2020, the UK's Oil and Gas Authority estimated that the equivalent of about 46 billion barrels of oil have been produced from the UK's continental shelf. In March 2022, the authority was rebranded as the North Sea Transition Authority to represent the changing focus of offshore energy extraction although it is still responsible for petroleum recovery. Oil platforms are set up to extract oil and gas from below the seabed. To decide where to put an oil platform requires detailed geotechnical information. Structures must be inspected and maintained annually to make sure they're sound. This needs data, equipment and time. The oil and gas industry is critical for keeping the machine running while we transition, but its days are numbered, which is why private capital is flowing into renewables. 
the North Sea will remain central to energy production. Currently, the UK has about 25 gigawatts of installed wind capacity, with about 14 gigawatts onshore and 11 gigawatts offshore. But offshore is catching up. The UK target is 50 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030, a little over 4 gigawatts of additional capacity every year. It took two decades to reach today's capacity, but we have less than one decade to more than triple it. That's one turbine every day for the rest of the decade. Thousands of assets will need to be built in the North Sea. Every turbine will need appropriate geology for foundations, or, as floating wind develops, anchors. Those thousands of turbines dwarf the number of oil rigs. There are fewer than 200 oil rigs in the North Sea today. It's lucky that all of the skills we need to run this new industry safely and efficiently are available to us as the hard-won legacy of North Sea oil. Every scientist would come to you with a brilliant idea, but it was about what is the risk, how does the extra data you need and ask for look at the uncertainty and therefore guide the investment decision. This is James Faropa. He's Fugro's Director of Geoconsultancy for Europe and Africa. He's worked in energy exploration around the world, including in Rio and Houston. James is an expert in understanding the data needed to guide decision-making around locating an asset, as well as the operations needed to maintain it. But then in 2020, he looked at where the world was going and really wanted to move on from pure oil and gas. Four years ago, around 80% of Fugro's work was in oil and gas. Today, 60% of its activities are related to wind. The magnitude of geodata that is required is way more than it was in oil and gas at the immediate seabed. And that's because of the touch points. If I consider how many oil wells are needed to recover a certain amount of joules, versus the equivalent number of wind turbines, it's probably tens to hundreds more touch points and therefore piles on the seabed to get the same amount of energy back for society. Offshore wind is busy today allocating investment around European coastlines. Project owners all need to know the same things. Be they new players in offshore wind or be they the old incumbents of the energy world who are looking to transition more into offshore wind. The first thing they will ask us is, how much wind is blowing? Very next thing that comes down to what is the right economics for them is about the subsurface, but not just the subsurface in its static sense, but how it may evolve over the next 25 years. The first step in assessing a site is a desktop screening, comparing sites to see if they're appropriate. This involves looking into the seabed and to a depth of about 100 metres below to check how a structure could be secured. Water depth is key here, but viable depths are changing as we move from fixed to floating turbines. And the big shift that's coming or is already with us is moving beyond around 60 metres, some will extend that to 80, where you simply cannot afford to put a big pole in the ground with a windmill on the top. Then you look at a floating structure which is anchored to the seabed. 
it's got to be anchored with, I initially thought, four anchors, but apparently they go up to eight, acting like a spider's web coming off the bottom of that feature. But these aren't individual structures. They are in arrays. So you may have 100 features tethered together, connected to the seabed in multiple locations. And engineers are looking at a range of designs to efficiently secure the turbines. The engineering has to be clever, and the conditions have to be understood. Otherwise, there may be challenges. The challenge, however, is if one of them breaks, then the whole spider's web, very much like a spider's web, becomes a lot more fragile. So we've certainly looked at some things and uh, you would say it's a great design, but if anything fails, your Scottish wind farm may soon be off of Iceland. In the oil and gas world, a $2 billion platform is heavily anchored to the seabed, equipped with dynamic thrusters and has a team monitoring it 24-7. But with multitudes of lower value turbines, The solution should be quite different, but if we extend what's been done in oil and gas, it would be anchors. Anchors are fallible. If you go to a small pile in the seabed, effectively a wall plug, you put a screw into it and you attach your chain to it, you will need a greater depth of inspection, potentially more traditional what you would do with a monopile. Using solely anchors, A good depth inspection below the seabed is still down to 20 metres. Even though, you know, with a drag, you maybe only expect penetration down to 10. I mean, it's highly variable. But the challenge with anchors is they're more around the mobility of the seabed. As when you're only looking at 5 to 10 metres depth penetration, when you have sand waves over a mobile substrate move across an area, you could change the loading on that anchor by half or double. Ground with good shear strength is one requirement, but models can't just be two-dimensional measuring the seabed, or three-dimensional including the depth. They must also consider the fourth dimension, time. There will be erosion or scour that will be controlled by the eddy currents moving around the structure, and that is something we will need to model. A featureless seabed with no challenges will change as soon as an asset is put in. A change in loading could lead to failure. The number one thing that owners are looking for at the moment, after the security and safety of assets and personnel, is the speed of deployment. And that's been enabled by, well, something of a revolution in the offshore sector. Pavel Michelak is Global Innovation Director at Fugro. He's in charge of new innovations and technologies, in the offshore sector. Originally, though, he was a satellite man. Indeed, I'm a satellite man. So I, I started a long time ago. I, I did it, I did my PhD in satellite geodesy, which was an absolutely uh, uh, interesting topic. I uh, loved it. At the top of the show, we claim there is a revolution underway in the North Sea, which is also a technological revolution. Well, there are always many technologies which contribute and are the changing moment for the world. And uh, we're actually not in a new time like this. I mean, if you look at all the revolutions, technology-driven revolutions which happened in the world, yes. Yeah? So, so 
introducing machines first revolution yeah then then anything electricity and phone and combustion engine second revolution and and every time this revolution happened there were also um, accompanying revolutions in the world of geodata you know we started with theodolites uh, went through uh, cadastral systems in the last digital revolutions what accompanied this was anything gps gnss systems uh, airflow preservations uh, suddenly we started having multi-layered data to learn from so this was uh, absolutely amazing so when you ask about this uh, technological switch or a revolution which which is driving the current industry it is very directly linked to the you know, fourth industrial revolution which is happening right now in the world of geodata the real revolution is in the ability to approach real-time decision making in considering one wind farm site compared to another or when deciding on maintenance in order to make a decision real time you need to have all the data and the data analyzed and insights derived from this data real time and this is why the, the all the investments uh, which are these days going into uh, um, being able to acquire any type of data anywhere on the planet robotic systems sensor systems a satellite communication which is uh, required to remotely control the sensors autonomy of 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 the platforms data acquisition platforms um, and this is only only on the data acquisition side because on the analytics and advice there is a similar revolution going on with deep learning ai cloud automation being able to understand the project and create understandable user-friendly interfaces to provide this information in web browsers, for example, anywhere on the planet. The web browsers offer an interesting analogy. We used to be amazed when we searched for a phrase and the browser returned thousands of hits. But what we really needed in those heady days of the late 1990s was a precise, reliable and relevant search. The exact same thing happened in geodata. In the past, we we didn't acquire much data because of the sensor resolution, and this was the biggest bottleneck. But today, we can build large data sets and are learning how to manage them. Today, we can collect a, a very detailed, high accuracy information in the in the areas which previously were very difficult to reach. I'm talking about subsurface. Uh, information. I'm talking about uh, um, any information and data which is required to design foundations, uh, mm. To, mm. to do a macroeconomical simulation of, of a wind farm, of, of a large road, or, or, or a large um, yeah, energy or, or, or infrastructure or coastal resilience infrastructure. Better data makes wind farms safer, speeds project schedules, reduces steel use and controls risk. All of those cut costs. But what are the developments that have enabled improvements on the data gathering side? Can the Global Innovation Director be pressed to name just a few? Well, I'm, I'm impressed with every single development. <laughs> I, I, we, I would probably divide them into groups. The first groups is uh, 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 robots and sensors. And, and here, for the marine environment, uh, uh, we are investing in mainly two types of vehicles. Uh, uh, ones are more of the robotic system, seabed type, 
frames which are used for to do any subsurface investigations on, yeah. underwater and uh, here we really come up with such an unbelievable portfolio of robots uh, uh, wading from you know five tons to 20 tons the move to automation and uncrewed vessels has meant that a great many jobs have moved to remote operation centers all around the world so uh, we're uh, not only uh, introducing uh, uh, remote operation centers around the globe, but we're also ensuring that we can pass operations of robotic systems from one remote operations to the, to the other one. Laura Aldrin is the digital and data manager for Total Energies in the UK. She studied mechanical engineering and French at Newcastle University. So finding a French energy company and major asset owner was a bit of a match made in heaven. And I thought how amazing that my slightly odd degree um, really fits in with with something. So, yeah, I've only ever worked for Total Energies. However, I have had quite a have done quite a few jobs. Laura ended up with a job in logistics on a digital project looking at having a mobile device offshore for maintenance activities, her first digital project and a huge learning curve. The company has a value target placed on its digital initiatives, but Laura says that more than that, there is a growing understanding in the company's culture. A transformation in understanding that we know that we can't, con we can't operate the way we did 20 years ago, and to remain competitive, we need to move with the times and transform and digital transformation is one of those levers. One of the digital products Total Energies is rolling out is called Well Guardian, referring to Well's data and interventions. Basically Well Guardian um, brings together multiple different data sources into one place to be able to have a full assessment of a well. It also enables the well intervention request process. So it's basically digitizing something that was completely in a paper format. We've got some fancy data science that goes on and enables us to, to monitor the wells and alert when, when the parameters are coming out with their kind of defined areas. Laura says that Total Energy's digital journey is currently focused on the visualization of data and moving into the data intelligence. So I, I've got all this data, but I, don't, I, want, I just want to see it. I don't, want, I don't need anything else, I just want to see it. To support decision-making and help collaboration between teams and ensure the asset remains safe and efficient. But then there is the next step as machine learning models are applied to the data. This can be used to enrich and validate the data when the data is scarce. We've got a really good example that we call early warning notification. So it's basically advanced anomaly detection. So basically taking machine learning techniques, um, enriching our data sets with artificial data, and then using it for anomaly detection in critical equipment. So it's quite complicated and difficult because anomalies are scarce. Training the model to find anomalies when you only have a few is difficult. So we wanted to give the ability to monitor like thousands of different signals at scale and how they interact with each other. 
in order to reduce the risk of missing important information that a human alone wouldn't be able to detect. And with increasing recognition of anomalies, the systems currently being developed can give engineers an increasing insight into potential problems so they can adopt preventive maintenance. The surge in offshore wind, a need for efficiency and social preferences are all driving R&D. We will need this type of technology when we operate in, re in remote and extreme environments. And uh, a lot of people don't want those wind farms next door, so they want them to be far away from, from where they live. And the, the price to pay is you have to go and maintain them far away from where humans live. This is Ivan Petio from Heriot Watt University, and he's referring to robots. Or autonomous vehicles, to speak more precisely. When Ivan began his career 25 years ago, it was the dawn of remotely operated vehicles, or ROVs. Over the next 10 to 15 years, he reckons they will become routine. So before that, we were using remotely operated vehicles, which were basically a, a robot with a tether and a, and a pilot. And we, we were just introducing those autonomous robots that would effectively look like a torpedo, but were full of instruments as opposed to explosives. But the autonomy was very limited. He spent the first 10 to 15 years of his career looking at what could be done to make these vehicles smarter. But he found that when a human is in the loop in terms of trust, there was a limit to this. So those robots got smarter and smarter, but at some point they get so smart that the, the human operator goes, I, I don't really understand what's going on. Because the amount of information that could be carried through the water by that tether was limited, the operator was becoming a problem. And around this time, uncrewed surface vessels began to appear. All of a sudden, you had the best of both worlds because you could take all the smart autonomy we had done for underwater and use it for robots which now have a tether to the surface vessel. And so if it gets complicated, you can always take over, but more importantly, you can bring all the data back so you can really explain to the operator what's going on. And so the level of trust in the autonomous system becomes so much higher. Autonomy is allowing thousands of assets to be inspected in a way that would be impossibly expensive with humans. Ivan says robots will be brought in and they will be brought in quickly. So I said inspection, I think in five years I'll be surprised if you still have people hanging off ropes offshore to do inspection or divers diving down to do inspection. The technology is already being used for inspections and some light interventions and satisfying regulatory requirements. But for interventions, maintenance and repair work, that's still a way off in the future. My name is Francesco Giorgio Sarchi. I'm working for the University of Edinburgh. I'm located in the Institute of Integrated Micro Nano System, but I'm also affiliated with the Edinburgh Centre for Robotics and the National Robotarium. Francesco has been interested in soft-bodied robots and bio-inspired design for a long time. This is still a cutting-edge area of robotics. 
soft-bodied robots were studied in Japan as early as the 1990s. Their soft surfaces make them safer for human interaction and, in industry, more resilient to collisions. They can work without stringent collision avoidance. However, they can be more difficult to model and control. So there are pros and cons. I regard soft robotics, uh, you know, this sort of new field in robotics as a, you know, a very interesting niche of work that should complement what already is there in traditional robotics. Now, what's interesting is that being able, uh, so having the maturity now, technological maturity to design robots which are partly uh, soft, allows us to better copy uh, nature. Look around. Animals and other living organisms are typically not rigid. Nature selects for strength, not hardness. So when it comes to strength, usually strength is associated with the flexibility. And, you know, if you really look around nature, many of the organisms are flexible or to some degree they are soft indeed. And so being able to design machines which are soft automatically translates into being able to design better, let's say, bio-inspired uh, robots. Natural competition picks winners. The fastest swimmers, the most alert prey. Bio-inspired robotics takes these evolved traits as a starting point. Unlike nature, it's teleological. It knows the endpoint it's aiming for. And I realized that there was this branch of robotics I was looking at, uh, octopuses and squids. And they were in particularly looking at the capability to replicate the uh, very compliant nature of the motion of a tentacle, for example. Uh, which is really a paradigm in robotics. A dexterous ocean predator capable of bursts of speed and sustained swimming, yet is delicate. It's a potential inspiration for underwater vehicles. And the fact that it can do this without a skeleton is interesting. Looking at the squid or octopus, there are two main attributes to learn from. It's propulsion, and its ability to manipulate objects. For propulsion, a squid or octopus expands a cavity in its body to suck water in, then abruptly compresses it to force the water out, creating jet pulses to propel the creature in the opposite direction of the jet. This has been regarded for many, many years as a very inefficient way of propelling uh, a vehicle or an animal, for the simple reason that half of the cycle is spent ingesting the fluid, and only half of the cycle of the pulsation uh, or, or the propulsion routine is expended to actually generate the jet. But it turns out that what animals, what these animals do, is exploiting the elasticity of their body. They exploit resonance, the same phenomenon where if you push someone on a swing and time the push perfectly, the oscillations amplify. This very same thing applies to squids and octopuses. So because they have an elastic body, when they expand and contract, there is a very spontaneous frequency, and we call it actually natural frequency, that wants the body to, con to come back to its unstrained state at a certain speed. By exploiting resonance, the creature expends much less energy, actually making jellyfish the natural world swimming champion. So we stick some elastic let's say, mechanical component in the actuator, 
that drives this ingestion and expulsion of fluid. And by matching the spontaneous, let's say, frequency of operation of this elastic term, we are able to minimize the energy needed to perform propulsion. Biology has also inspired a number of designs for manipulators. Imagine a rigid, traditional robotic manipulator. If you separate these in, let's say, many, many, many joints, you achieve a degree of mobility that is almost comparable to, to the case where this manipulator was continuous, made of a single body of uh, elastic material. The soft robotics approach brings this to the next level, using a single piece of elastic material to achieve the maximum feasible mobility. But to make it useful, it still needs a way to control the various parts of the manipulator. Now, an easy way to do that is to use, for example, going back to the nature simili similarity, to use cables, so which are similar to tendons of our arms, distributed along the length of this arm, or this soft arm. And at that point, the only real constraint is the number of cables that you can put in place. So the more you put there, the more you can control the motion of this object. Imagine our robo-tentacle manipulator. If you have a single tendon that runs from the tip to the base, you pull it and the manipulator bends. If you start placing maybe another cable somewhere along the length, maybe at mid-length of this of these, uh, arm, you would be able now to have two points where you can tweak the motion. So maybe the deep uh, cable would pull in one direction and the mid cable in the opposite direction. Pulling the manipulator into a wavy S kind of shape. By increasing the number of cables, you can achieve any sort of configuration that you want. The space in between them, essentially, gives you a lot of design flexibility. But on the other hand, downside is that this becomes progressively more complex to control. So knowing exactly what cables do you need to pull, when, with which amount, to perform the task that you want to execute. It required the roboticists to interact with biologists, who pointed them toward nature and its multi-billion year series of design iterations. One day, our offshore robots will look much more like they belong in the marine environment. Agile, efficient, and able to exert a lot of force. The offshore energy sector is changing rapidly. It requires new skills and new ways of looking at the world. But like many other industries, it's competing for the best graduate talent. Here's Laura from Total Energies. Offshore energy is absolutely critical to the energy transition. So we will not get to our net zero goals without the energy industry. We know that we have to carry on um, investing in our current energy sources so that we can transition away from some of the heavier carbon energy sources and through to more greener energy resources, but it's a transition and it's going to take many, many years. James Faropa says the obvious skill he looks for in new starters is computer literacy, but that this has been the case since the 1990s. He looks for an attitude more than any specific skill. 
what I fear we lose too much is that curiosity and scientific rigor, irrespective of how it's applied. So I would always look for that in someone and then their ability to work with AI coding, machine learning, visualization. I believe most people can be trained on that. And it's about that solid scientific rigor underneath um, that, that comes through. But, you know, the the old Victorian scientific way of making a simple empirical relationship, something like a Hooke's law, is a form of machine learning. It's just a correlation. But instead of correlating 50 experiments with three parameters, now we're correlating 2 million experiments with 500,000 parameters. It's giving us much better resolution. Ivan says students and young engineers need to take their ideas out into the real world. I would advise my students to, as always, be curious, look around, get practical as soon as possible. Don't don't just do things in simulation because simulation is nice and rewarding because everything works. But when you go to the real world, you realize that actually a lot of algorithm you developed in simulation needs to be changed, adapted, and sometimes completely ditched to work in the real world. And for Pavel, an openness to learning and relearning is key. Technologies will change. I am changing roles every couple of years. Uh, and usually you, you, you learn and you learn and then you utilize this knowledge and, and then you realize that maybe this particular technology or knowledge or skill does not, is not relevant uh, anymore. Sometimes we say that what, what got you here will not take you there. So I think my biggest advice will be a, a, a really high degree of agility. Learn as much as possible. You need to love learning. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Johnny Dowling. Sounds Engineering by Ross McPherson, Series Supervision by John Young, and our own remote control room is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner Fugro, and thanks also to our guests from Total Energies, Orca Hub, and the University of Edinburgh. And thank you to all of our audience and everyone around the world for listening. As ever, you can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn. Thanks, everyone. Engineering Matters and Reby Media team have been working on a new podcast series in partnership with HS2. How to Build a Railway is a 12-part podcast series exploring the story behind the construction of the UK's new high-speed rail line. It's now available on all podcast apps. To learn more about HS2, go to hs2.org.uk.